This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. In 1945, in the desert of New Mexico, there was a group of observers. And these observers were gathered in this concrete bunker, a fortified concrete facility, and they were looking out through thick glass, through binoculars at the horizon, at a spot of dirt just in the middle of the desert. Now, what did they expect to see there? What were they looking for? 1945 in the desert in Nevada. What do you think they were looking for? Well, I'll tell you. These individuals, these observers, were part of a military project. It was called Project Trinity, which is an interesting name. Project Trinity. And they were scientific observers of the first detonation of an atomic bomb. Well, as they looked out through their bunkers, shielded in concrete, and the plexiglass and all this, as they looked out from a distance, the bomb went off, and the bomb did not disappoint. It did not disappoint. The observers watched the detonation occurred, and the ferocity of that explosion was unlike anything that these individuals had ever seen. Now, amongst the group that was gathered to watch that, there was a woman. Her name was Joan Hinton. Now, Joan Hinton said this upon watching this explosion. She said, it was like being at the bottom of an ocean of light. We were bathed in it from all directions. Then the light withdrew into the bomb as if the bomb sucked it up. And then it turned purple and blue and it went up and up and up. We were still talking in whispers when the cloud reached the levels where it was struck by the rising sunlight so that it cleared out all the natural clouds. We saw a cloud that was very dark and red at the bottom, daylight at the top. Then, then after all that, suddenly the sound reached us. And it was very sharp and it rumbled and all the surrounding mountains rumbled with it. Given the ferocity of that kind of blast, that kind of explosion, how in the world did these observers survive it? How did they survive it? Well, they survived it because of two very important, very necessary advantages. Number one, there was distance between the blast and them. They were not at ground zero, there was a distance. Number two, they survived it, and they survived the fallout and everything else, the radiation that came with it. They survived it because they were encased in concrete. There was something between them and the heat of the explosion. There was something between them and that which otherwise would have consumed them. Now, what do you think would have happened if they hadn't had those advantages? What do you think would have happened if they'd been at ground zero? What do you think would have happened? They'd been standing at ground zero when this thing went off with nothing to protect them, no distance away from it. What would have happened? Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. They would have disintegrated where they stood. Several thousand years ago, there was a whole nation, a whole nation of people that saw something, experienced something so significant, so great, so powerful, so scary, that it makes an atom bomb seem insignificant by comparison. Specifically, this nation that we know as Israel was gathered at a safe distance from a mountain. The mountain is called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, as they were gathered, suddenly a fire descended upon the mountain. Now, this was not fire that comes from the ground up. This is fire that came from the heavens down. It descended, engulfed the mountain in heavenly flames. Upon the flames arriving also came the lightning and the thunder and the storm and the tempest and the darkness. There was smoke all around this mountain. And given the size of the mountain, this is not an insignificant thing. And then, as if that wasn't enough, as if that wasn't scary enough to witness, then there was a heavenly voice that came down 
and reverberated across the scope of the mountain and the desert. Exodus 20 describes this encounter that Israel had with God in this way. It says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood far off. Picture people running to get as far away from that as they could, and you'd have it right. They stood far off. And then they said to Moses, Moses... You speak with us and we'll hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. They heard the voice of God. In the midst of all that they saw, they heard the voice of God. Their reaction was to run as far away as they could from it and to tell Moses, Dear heavens, Moses, don't let that happen again. If God's going to talk to anyone, let him talk to you. If we hear that again, we will perish. The observers in 1945 had a terrifying encounter with an atom bomb, but it had nothing compared to this. Now, let me ask you a thinking question this morning. We'll put on our thinking hats. This is Israel. This is not the Philistines. This is not the Moabites. This is not the Hittites. This is not the Amorites. This is Israel. So if this is God meeting his people Israel, why were they scared? Well, remember this, that yes, it is good to be the people of God. Yes, that is good. And yet, at the same time, there is such a thing as having a godly and a reverent fear the power and might and the authority and the majesty of this one. You realize that the angels in heaven, they cover their eyes when they're in the presence of this one. We have lost sight in modern-day North American evangelical Christianity with how big God is, how majestic he is, how powerful he is, and how holy he is. Project Trinity in 1945 has nothing on what it's like to encounter the triune God. Now, if that's true, And I've only taken a moment, a moment, to even slightly talk about the holiness and the majesty and the radiance and the power of God. If he is all that, dear heavens, what is our hope then? I mean, if you honestly believe God really is holy and he really is powerful and he really hates sin, if you and I are introspective for the least moment, we would say, but I'm a sinner, therefore I have a problem. He's holy, I'm not. What's my hope then? Well, that's what today's passage is all about. Today's passage in Hebrews 12 explains to us the hope that we have when we come into the presence of a God who is a consuming fire. Let's look at this power and let's look at this promise that we see in today's text. I'm going to reread verses 18 through 21 and then we'll work our way through the balance. Verse 18, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest, to the sound of a trumpet, the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. If so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was this sight that even Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. All right, in verses 18 through 21, We see across the course of our text, there are two mountains that are talked about. There's two mountains that come up in today's text. Now, verses 18 through 21 talk about the first of those mountains, and it's the mountain we call Sinai, Mount Sinai. And then a few verses later, in a few moments, we'll talk about Mount Zion, an altogether different mountain. Now, before we describe these mountains, ask what these mountains are about, what's going on with these mountains, let me ask you, why is the author of Hebrews talking about mountains at all? 
Why is he even talking about mountains? What do mountains have to do with matters of faith? Why refer to Sinai? Why refer to Zion? What does this have to do with anything? Well, in days of antiquity, if you were to go back to ancient cultures, you would see that all of the religious belief systems thought that God either lived at the top of mountains or that you could get to him if you were to climb up the mountain. In other words, so many belief systems of antiquity believed that God could be accessed at the top of a mountain. The Greeks, remember Mount Olympus? That's where Zeus and the others lived. So that was a common understanding in the age in which this book was written, was that God was at the top of mountains, and that you could descend to him, or at least flag him down if you climbed just high enough and got his attention. Now, can a man actually climb to heaven? Is that the way it works? Well, no. But that hasn't stopped mankind across all the centuries from thinking that you could. The Tower of Babel, it's the same principle. If you get just high enough in the altitude, God will be there. Now, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, there is some truth in mountains having importance, even in Christianity. There is some truth in this idea that mountains have relevance and importance, and we see that in today's text. In today's text, there's two mountains, two mountains that are identified, and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that all of mankind is on a spiritual pilgrimage towards one of these two mountains. All of mankind, it's like their spiritual GPS is set towards one of two mountains. The first one is Sinai. First one identifies Sinai, and the second one will be Zion. And what the author is going to say is that depending on which one you're aimed towards, you will encounter God. But the nature of that encounter will be wildly different depending on which mountain you attempt to ascend. So verses 18 through 21, he's talking about Sinai. That's the first mountain he tries to explain here. Now, what do we remember about Sinai? Well, we probably remember the basics we read earlier. Sinai is the mountain on which God came down. It's the mountain with the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and all that impressive stuff. Let me ask you another question. What important event occurred at Sinai? What did God give to Moses on the mountain? Ten Commandments. One of the things you remember about Sinai was this is the place that the mediator of the Old Covenant went up the mountain. Everyone else had to stay back lest they die. The mediator went up the mountain, he met with God, and God gave him the law. Throughout Scripture, when the word Sinai comes up, it's almost synonymous with law-giving. You hear about Sinai, you think back to the giving of the law. Nehemiah said this. He was telling his people, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them ordinances and true laws. So this is what happened on Sinai. And all the prophets and the kings and the apostles, everyone looked back at Sinai for this reason, for the giving of the law. Now, with that said, if you and I keep the law that typified Sinai, if we climb Sinai, so to speak, if we do all the things that the law says to do, can we reach God on the other end? Can we get to heaven on this basis? Is Sinai a welcoming means, a welcoming means by which we can come to God by keeping the law and ascending the law and then standing in his presence as righteous before him? Is that possible? Well, it's a little bit of a trick question. This initially was something called the covenant of works. And the problem that mankind has is that no one can keep it. Law-keeping is not a means for you or I or anyone of woman born to be saved. And the reason why is because all are sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. You and I, if the standard, if the mountain that we're called to climb to get to God and to get to heaven is the mountain that is typified in law-keeping and doing good, 
Our problem is that we can't keep it perfectly. Now, a lot of folks think that they can. The default setting of the world around us, the default trajectory, the spiritual GPS for most people in the world around us and most other belief systems is to think that by doing good enough and being nice enough and having people like you and looking in the mirror and thinking, I'm okay, I'm better than Hitler, I'm better than Bob from accounting, I'm better than someone else down the street. If you look in the mirror and you think, I deserve to be saved on the basis that I've done enough, I'm nice enough, I'm good enough, that's the equivalent of thinking that you can ascend to God via Sinai. I can keep the law and therefore get to God. Or at least I can keep enough of the law. Maybe not all of it. I can't keep it perfectly, but you know, God, God understands. And to that, to that I submit to you everything we read about Sinai. God's people, no matter how pious they thought they were, they couldn't so much as set a foot on it. They couldn't get a toehold on this mountain to climb it, lest they die. If you think that you're going to get to heaven on the basis of things that you do, you're wrong. That's the simple, simplest way to explain it. If you think you can get to heaven by keeping God's laws, you will find out the hard way that you can't even set your foot upon the first rock. Sinai is a non-starter. And that's what the author is trying to make clear here. He's talking about Sinai, then he's going to talk about Zion. And when he talks about Sinai, he says, look, you can't get to heaven by doing enough things. You can't do enough good deeds, be nice enough to your neighbor. You can't do all of that. There's no amount of temporal deeds that you can perform that will offset even one spiritual transgression. You can't pay off one sin by doing a thousand nice things, a million nice things. It does not work that way. You can't set foot on this mountain and climb to God. And what a tragedy it is that our whole world largely thinks that you can. They might not call it Sinai. They might have other names for that belief system. But any belief system that is vested on works, that is definitely, absolutely, non-negotiably, not what we see in this text, or any of Scripture's passages. Now, if that's true, again, what's our hope? If Sinai is a non-starter, if it's an unclimbable mountain, if it's forever blocked with fire, if I can't get to God by being nice enough and good enough and the like, then what's my hope? Well, I want you to notice in verse 18, some good news, some good news in verse 18. In verse 18, the author of Hebrews, he says that, yes, although Sinai is impassable, although you can't go there, Although that's true, he says that Sinai is not the mountain that we as Christians have come to. More specifically, he said this in verse 18. He's speaking to the church, he's speaking to Christians like you and I, and he says, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. If that's true, then what mountain have we come to? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. Let's look at verses 22 through 24. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. All right. Most of us, if I was asked you, tell me where Mount Sinai is, or if I was asked you a different question, is Mount Sinai a real thing, a real place? You go, yes, and you might be able to find it on a map in the Sinai Peninsula. But if I was to ask you to tell me about Mount Zion, and I would say, hey, is it Mount Zion, is this a real place, a real mountain? And if so, where is it? Where could you go to find Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion is indeed a real mountain. 
This is a real place. It's in Israel. In fact, it's one of several small mountains. We might actually see them as hills, but several small mountains on which the city of Jerusalem now sits, which the city of Jerusalem was built. And in Scripture, sometimes the word Zion is a reference to this hillside, and sometimes it's a reference to Jerusalem in general. Sometimes it's a reference to the city of God where the temple was, Zion. Beyond that, sometimes in Scripture, Zion is a reference to the holy Zion, the Zion of God, to the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom above. Now, with that said, given how foreboding and impassable Mount Sinai was, given how dark and stormy and how difficult it was to approach God via Sinai, what makes Mount Zion more accessible? Given that we can't take even one step upon the figurative Sinai to get to heaven, what makes Zion any different? Well, the short answer is this, and I'll unpack it for a bit, but the short answer is this. The effort to ascend to Zion's peak, such as it is, we're speaking in figurative and spiritual language, the effort to ascend Zion's peak doesn't rest on you, but on Christ. Verses 22 through 24 describe Mount Zion as a mountain not of the law, but of grace, a mountain that you don't have to, through your own sweat and tears and efforts and pains and tumults, climb on your own, getting inch by inch higher based on your own works and merit. That's not how you ascend Mount Zion. Rather, Mount Zion, it is Christ who carries you to the very pinnacle, because this is a mountain of grace. Mount Zion is altogether different from Mount Sinai. Sinai was marked by fear. Think of how Israel looked. They wanted to run as far away from Sinai as they could. They stood back. They ran back. They plugged their ears. They wanted no part of Sinai. It was marked by fear. But Zion, as we see in this text, Zion is marked by love and grace and forgiveness. Very desirable things. Sinai was characterized by guilty men who were told to keep away. But Zion, Zion is characterized by this great assembly of previous sinners who have been forgiven, just men made perfect. Sinai was a function of the old covenant, which was vested in the law and law-keeping. Zion, this mountain, typifies grace in the new covenant, which is founded not on the keeping of the law per se by you and I, but on Christ's perfect obedience to the law and his atoning act on Calvary. There's altogether different criteria by which you can filter these two mountains out. Sinai had a mediator. It was Moses. A new Moses, a better Moses has come. Mount Zion has Jesus. Now, stop for a moment. Let's say we've got at least that. Let's say, all right, I've got at least that much. There's two mountains in this text. One is Sinai that reflects the law, and the other is Zion that reflects grace. Even if you knew nothing else or took nothing else away, and I was to ask you the question, say, all right, which one do you prefer? If I was to say, which of these mountains, now that I've described them a little bit, one is dark and craggly and hard even to look at, let alone to climb. There's lightnings and thunderings, and there's like a giant keep outside and barbed wire. and like, I'd say, which mountain would you prefer, that one? Or the one where the angels sing the one of forgiveness and reconciliation and grace of just men made perfect. Which mountain do you want? Well, I trust in this room at least we'd say, well, 
Sign me up for Zion. That sounds pretty good. The alternative doesn't sound good at all. But here's the thing. Here's the cruel irony. The world around us, virtually every other belief system known to man since the beginning of time, has had a spiritual GPS set on the equivalent of Mount Sinai. Virtually every other belief system, including most of the people in the world around us, even most people in our community, think that they're going to be saved through law-keeping, or doing good deeds, or being nice, or being kind, or being better than Hitler. Most people think they're in good shape. They don't have a problem. Why? Because hell, if it exists, well, that's just for the real bad people. But, you know, you and me, we, we tried our best, and God understands. The default setting of mankind is to think that if you have to get to heaven, if you have to ascend, that you'll ascend through the equivalent of Sinai on the basis of your works. They heed not the warnings about the storm and the fire. They heed not the warnings of Hebrews 12 that say that road is closed to you. And the irony is the world around us rejects the free offer of grace. Dear heavens, what else do you possibly want than a mountain that is made possible to ascend by virtue of grace? Not you trying hard enough, but God through Jesus Christ living the life that you should live and dying the death that you should have died. And all that is called for you is to have faith in Jesus and his person and work. Why in the world would anybody add 10,000 laws that they need to keep and hope and pray, dear heavens, I hope I kept enough of them, and go to their deathbed uncertain whether they did enough and whether God truly loves them and God will forgive them? You and I can rest confident in our status with our maker in this. We are saved. We have a future with him if we have trusted in his son. Full stop. This is the message of Hebrews 12, and yet it is a message that so many will reject. So many do reject. And the author of Hebrews says, don't. Do not refuse this. Do not refuse him who speaks. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. These are our last verses. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven whose voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. The removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. You know, the book of Hebrews was written to a Christian audience and yet a Christian audience that had a Jewish background, a Hebrew background. With that said, there are moments in Hebrews that seem to be overtly evangelistic. It's as if it's written to the heart and mind of the unbeliever. This is one of those verses. Verse 25, it's almost as if God is taking, taking the unbeliever by the lapels and shaking him and saying, see to it that you do not refuse this because your future hinges upon it. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, God says in verse 25. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Now, at face value, that seems like a warning. It seems like a serious warning. 
What kind of warning, however? What's God speaking about? All this talking of things being shaken and removed and the like, what's going on here? Well, it seems to be, most commentators believe, a warning of some future judgment, some future judgment and occurrence in which all of the created realm will be shaken and removed. And only that which is good and righteous, only that which is of God shall remain. In a sense, what we see in these verses, it's what we call eschatological. It's end times, looking ahead. It seems to refer to a final sifting, a sifting that the entire created realm will undergo, an encounter with God that no one will escape. That's the warning in the passage. That's the words in the passage. You will not escape this. You will not escape this. You know, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I'll go out on a limb here. I'll tell you one thing that I believe with absolute certainty about your future. I believe that in a day will come, a day will come when you will stand before God. I believe a day will come when you will encounter God. It may be sooner, it may be later. Just like a person that's immobilized on train tracks, there is an encounter coming with something much larger than a train. And perhaps, perhaps even now, especially in this weird and wild days we live in, perhaps even now if you cup your spiritual ears, so to speak, you can hear it coming. One thing's for certain, that day has never been closer than it is right now. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he said this day is coming. There's an encounter that's coming. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You know what stands out to me in Paul's phrasing in 2 Corinthians 5 is his reference to something called the terror of the Lord. Dear heavens, in our day and age, we have done everything that we can to kick God off his throne, so to speak, to lower him, to make him just a little bit bigger than us. We have taken everything Scripture says about this God and his qualities and his attributes and his nature and his holiness, and we've lessened that at the same time when we've increased our view of ourselves. And so when Paul talks about the terror of the Lord, it stands out to me because Paul is highlighting something that the modern church has gone out of its way to avoid, and that's the danger of falling into the hands of a living God. The danger. I wonder, do you think, when Scripture talks about this stuff, what do you do with it? See, a lot of folks, and I'm convinced that the greater evangelical North American church has taken this heavy stuff and put it in the closet, so to speak, put it aside. Because why? That, that sounds bad. It sounds scary. At the very least, it, it's, it's something that someone else, again, Hitler might have to deal with. The idea that we should all stand before God, that's something that isn't thought about in any great nature. And the idea that he's holy and we're sinners, we don't do much with that. So we think sometimes in the greater evangelical world that this is just hyperbole. When he talks about a dreadful thing in Hebrews 10, to fall in the hands of the living God. When Hebrews 12 talks about our God is a consuming fire, we shrug our corporate shoulders and go, hmm, as if that's no small thing. Paul says a day will come. A day is coming. It's on the radar. It's on the horizon. It's never been closer than it is today when we will stand before him. And when we stand before him, if we stand before him clad only in our works and our own self-righteousness and our sense that we're just fine, never mind that we're caked in sin, never mind that we have a track record that's a mile long, filled with depravity, we think we can haul that in, stand in his holy presence, and he's going to be cool with it. He's going to be fine. 
The whole of Scripture, the whole of the Gospel, the whole of Hebrews here is telling us that's not the way it works. Our God is a consuming fire. If you think you can stand before that God on the basis of your own self-styled righteousness, you are going to find out the hard way that's not the way it works. It is true when you stand before God that you need to be righteous before Him, but that righteousness does not come from you. It's what theologians call an alien righteousness, and by that I mean it comes from a source outside of and greater than you. When you stand before God, you need to be righteous, but here's the way that that's attained. It's attained through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it's attained through the white robe of righteousness that He grants to us. On Calvary, when He died, your sin and my sin was imputed, placed, credited upon Him, so that He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sin was placed upon Him. But at the same time, there was another imputation that occurred. At the same time, His righteousness is granted to us so that when you stand before God, you stand before Him clad in the righteousness of His own Son. And that's how you can be forgiven. That's how just men are made perfect. We're not perfect because we've done everything right. Heaven forbid. We appear righteous before God because His righteousness has been granted to us. And that won't change If you're a believer, it's true of you even now. And that's why God looks down at you and I who believe as sons and daughters, forgiven. Forgiven, men and women. You and I, there's a great deal of promise in these words. There's, of course, a great deal of warning to the unbeliever as well to take this seriously, to understand that the day is coming. Don't hedge your bets on an insurance policy of your own virtue. It won't pay out. Turn to Christ while you still can. Do not refuse him who speaks. While it is still day, listen, for the night is coming. With that said, if you're a Christian this morning, be encouraged to know this, that all the storm of Sinai, all that took place in that context, all of the fear you might otherwise have of falling beneath the punitive angry wrath of God, If you were a believer, a child of God this day, you have no condemnation before you. You have nothing to fear of a punitive God dealing angrily with you. If you were a believer this morning, let me be abundantly clear on this point as we close. Those who profess faith, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, have a very different future from those who don't. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who stand before him on that day, clad in the righteousness of his Son, have nothing to fear. And the way that that white robe of righteousness is attained is through faith in him, him who grants it. We're not called to do a million good deeds and then hope that it wasn't a million and one that we were supposed to do. We're not called to do good deeds in order to save us. Our good deeds prove that we were saved, that we are saved. They're fruit, good fruit from a regenerate nature. But we don't trust. We don't trust in our own works. We trust in Christ and what he did. And if we have that faith, if we've named it, if we have this faith before Jesus Christ, we come before God and man and say, I believe this to be true. I believe this to be true. And God has regenerated our hearts and made us something different now than we used to be. If this is true, we have nothing to fear. Even though we encounter God in this way, we have nothing to fear. This is much better than a concrete bunker being sealed in while a bomb goes off. This is much better. We have nothing to fear. 
if we have the intercession of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I'll tell you a story I didn't share at the 9 a.m. as we close here this morning. You remember uh, John F. Kennedy. There's a famous picture, President Kennedy. He's sitting in the Oval Office, and the desk that JFK had is something called the Resolute Desk. Now, this goes back generations of presidents before him. It's a famous desk, sits there in the Oval Office. Now, before JFK became president, Franklin Roosevelt, if you looked at the desk, it had an opening where if you were facing the president, you could look down and see his legs. Well, as you know, FDR had polio. He had problems you know, moving and walking and the like. And so he had the panel inserted with a little hatch inserted at the bottom of the Resolute Desk so that people, when they came to the Oval Office, they couldn't see his legs. Well, when JFK, when JFK became president, this panel still existed. But there's a famous picture of JFK sitting in the Oval Office in a room that foreign dignitaries feared to tread. JFK is sitting in his office, and the hatch is open down by his legs, and down below you can see John F. Kennedy's children playing at his feet. They were playing, and they were comfortable, and they were confident in the presence of the most powerful man on earth in a room that foreign dignitaries sweated to enter. They were confident. This isn't a one-for-one one comparison, but the point is this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have this sort of access to the Father. Yes, he is a consuming fire for those who do not believe and for all that which is of sin, but for those who are his children, for those who are beloved of the Father, he is a Father, and he treats you as such, and he grants you love and grace and comfort and confidence even in his presence. This morning, don't choose Sinai. Don't choose an approach to God that will not get you there. Choose Zion, which is founded on a better covenant, which is founded on a better mediator, which is founded on the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.